Hey, you ever listen to stock radio? Ever listen to stock radio on Weeb? Happy to have here my co-host KD, Nick, and Stace. How are you guys? Doing awesome. Good, Very good. Glad to have you guys here. I've so got a good show tonight. Have uh, someone who I'm interested to speak to, Jeff Friedland. He's been on Popstock Radio before. Back in the green rush days of 2014, Jeff has been around since the beginning. And uh, he's the CEO of not only... Friedland Global Capital, but also Invita Incorporated and Invita Biopharma. And also, you'll see him on Cannabis Insider TV and uh, also Marijuana Stock of the Week. Check out his videos that he's been putting out that really are educational. If you are following a company that he's talking about, he's definitely someone that you want to listen to. You've probably seen him before on uh, – what was the show he was on? Uh, High Profits he had something to do with, I think, on CNN. But we're not going to wait much longer. Real quick, got to get some sponsorship stuff out of the way. Don't want to forget. MagicalButter.com. Check them out. If you uh, make either oil, butter, tincture, and you're not using Magical Butter 2.0, you are missing out. Because it really is not only the best, cleanest way to do it, but you get the perfect product at the end because it does all of the heating. Uh, if you go long enough, I've been told, and I believe it's true after trying it, that it decarboxylates and does the whole process in one simple, easy step of putting all your stuff in and hitting two hours or four hours, whether you want to make butter or oil or butter or tincture. But it really is the best way. I've tried other ways. I've tried other products. There's really nothing that comes close to Magical Butter 2.0. And even if you have the first Magical Butter, step up to the 2.0 really is an upgrade. And if you go to their website, MagicalButter.com, put in the promo code POTSTOCK, and you will get 30 bucks off your Magical Butter 2.0. And that's POT space stock? Nope. Right? All one word, POTSTOCK. One word, POTSTOCK. Uh, don't forget too to check us out and follow us on Facebook. We're Potstock Radio NJ, or join the group. I don't even know if we can separate them at this point. Potstock Radio, and follow us on Twitter at Potstock Radio. All right, want to remind everyone uh, we are here for informational purposes only. What we talk about, or what Jeff Friedland talks about, isn't a recommendation for you to buy or sell any security. We're just here having a conversation, giving you a little due diligence to help you become a more informed cannabis investor. So no further ado, let's welcome him back to Potstock Radio. Jeff Friedland, how are you tonight, sir? It's great. It's great to be back again. It's been a while. Glad to have you, man. By the way, anything I got wrong? So CEO Friedland Capital? Um, yeah, the only, the only um, quick thing is you sort of spelled the name of the company wrong. It's Intiva, I-N-T-I-V-A, and Intiva Biopharma. Um, it's interesting. We created those by sort of putting together. People don't figure it out, Eric. Uh, 
indica and sativa and you end up with intiva so that's how we named the companies and very few people are aware of that so you know what see, just for some humor sounds better than syndica And that's the problem is it's too smart for me, Jeff. So you missed me with it. And now that I look back, I'm an idiot because I have other places on my notes with it spelled in Tiva. Right, right. And now there's in Tiva Inc. and in Tiva Biofarm. Since we started there, give us, uh, you know, why there was the spinoff and what one company does compared to the other. I know they're private companies, so it doesn't really matter for investors, but. Well, actually, um, yeah, Intiva Inc. was we formed it back in early 2014, and as a Canadian company, um, initially just to buy into uh, growers in Canada or wannabe growers in Canada who intended to be Eric um, licensed under Health Canada, and we bought in the three um, three growers up there, and then we figured out, gosh, we're in Colorado in the midst of all this, and. You know, you had alluded to high profits on CNN, and Richard Greenberg, who started one of the partners who started in Tiva with me, he and I had funded um, the Breckenridge Cannabis Club, which was uh, we put up the money for it. It was one of the first in state of Colorado to go recreational on January one of fourteen. So they had a dispensary on Main Street in Breckenridge, became recreational retail store, had one in Crested Butte and a grow facility south of Steamboat Springs. And, you know, a year later, CNN did an eight-part reality series on that, which is high profits. So we had that experience when we formed Intiva. And Intiva does a few different things. We're active in the CBD business, and we, we have some great proprietary products there. We also lease um, California-made CO2 extraction equipment because uh, a lot of people, participants in the industry, people who want to be processors, don't have the money to lay out 125000 So we lease that equipment, and we do some other things. But then what happened, Eric, was I was in Israel speaking at the uh, Cantec conference, and I met a scientist from Princeton, New Jersey, and he had something intriguing. He had the use of cannabinoids um, as both a prophylactic and a treatment for exposure to nerve agents, nerve agents like sarin gas and um, VX gas, which is what obviously yeah. Kim Jong-un killed his uh, half-brother in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia with. And so, um, you know, we decided that we would license um, the intellectual property from him, but if we were going to do a pharma deal, uh, a cannabinoid pharma company, Eric, people, you know, we concluded that people really wanted a 100% pharma play. They didn't want us to be in like four or five different businesses. And within TV Inc., we had gone into all those different businesses back in 2014 because, you know, that was early in this cannabis industry. I was the first person to call this industry an emerging market. I was quoted in USA Today in November of 13, and, you know, nobody knew where you should put your money, where the winners and losers were going to be, or anything else. So, make a long story short, we decided if we were going to do a pharma company, we needed to finance it separately. Uh, we would do it as a spinoff. We were call it Intiva Biopharma as a website, and um, the bottom line of it is uh, um, we raised some money privately. We started with this nerve agent 
cannabinoid direction, which we have underway. And then we said, you know, the problem is when you're working on um, pharmaceutical research with an FDA, Food and Drug Administration, pathway here in the United States, that it takes a long time, takes a lot of money. And, you know, quite honestly, uh, most people who start forget about cannabis. Just generally, when you start pharma development, more uh, drug candidates do not work um, as opposed to those that work. So we then looked at it and said, we've got to diversify our risk. And then we filed uh, provisional patent applications on five other different directions in Intiva Biopharma. And what happened was um, we then also concluded that we would need Eric to raise a lot of money to come, to be able to do pharmaceutical research sure. and that we would be better off being public than private. So we actually did complete a couple of weeks ago a transaction, a reverse merger with a small shell company, totally clean, um, called Kinder, K-I-N-D-E-R, Holdings. So we haven't changed the name yet. We're waiting on all the regulatory stuff. The Kinder Holdings symbol is KDRH, is 100% about Intiva Biopharma. Um, the stock was up today. There's very little flow. We've got to file a registration statement with the SEC. We've got to get the name changed, uh, um, which hopefully will happen in the next week or so. And then we've got to get a new stock symbol from FINRA. So all that should happen in the next three weeks, and it will trade under Intiva Biopharma with a, a new stock symbol. In the meantime, it trades under KDRH. Understood. And now I love to hear people who've been there since the beginning. And what I want to know about more than day one of the Green Rush, because, you know, you were in Colorado January 1st, 2014. But I more want to know about the November, December. What was it like before the rush happened? Was it expected that it was going to be anywhere near as crazy as it was in 2014? Well, I don't think it was really crazy. I, I'm going to go back further than that. You know, you're talking November, December. I'm going to go back to the summer of 2013, Eric, because that's when we started. And what we decided to do was we were sitting here in Colorado my background, as you know, was in corporate finance and investment banking, and I was early on the China scene and had a office in Beijing for 10 years. And, you know, when we're, when we're looking at it, the, we closed the China office because of the global financial crisis, and nobody was really interested in Chinese companies or really after the financial crisis much of anything. So I wasn't really doing a whole lot. I wrote a book on China. And then we decided, you know, here we are in Colorado. We have the background. We've always been sort of pro this plant. And so two things happened. We decided, decided Richard Greenberg and I, in the summer of 2013, to start doing Starbucks meetings. And we started meeting with people who were on the medical side in Colorado, um, who we met with illegal growers. We met with lots of people who wanted to be on the recreational or adult use side of the marketplace. And we just did meeting after meeting after meeting. And that led us in late December of 14 to make the investment with this young couple from Breckenridge, Colorado, which is a resort ski town, in the Breckenridge Cannabis Club, which then included, became, it also included uh, Crested Butte, Colorado, which was uh, another ski town and a grow facility. So been there, done it. I don't think people looking back at it, 
I don't think it was crazed. I think, you know, a lot of people, the whole world was watching because Colorado was the first jurisdiction in the world, not just the United States, where it was going to be legally possible come January 1 to walk in off the street, just like you'd walk into a liquor store or a 7-Eleven, and buy marijuana. And that was a big deal. And there were a lot of people, Eric, that were, were anti this plant. There's still a lot of people anti this plant, you know, yeah. and you can see what Congress is doing, not, you know, really solving the issues. And, yeah. you know, people wanted it to fail. People thought it would be horrible. They thought the world was going to end in Colorado. And January 1 came and went, and, you know, it was just like another day, and it's just like another industry. The big difference was I remember – Early in the first quarter of 2014, Eric, you know, being at dinner and all of a sudden you'd openly be able to talk about marijuana with the servers. You'd be able to talk about stuff and it, it everybody sort of came out of the closet, but it wasn't anything, you know, drastic. The business Colorado did not implode. Um, so that was really, you know, I think that was really significant and it showed a lot of people in a lot of other states and for that matter foreign countries that this plant truly is not evil all kinds of bad things wouldn't happen and you know people came on the bandwagon to the point today that we have what is it you know nine states that have uh, adult use or soon will have and 29 states plus district of columbia and puerto rico and guam that have uh, medical marijuana, you know, plus all kinds of countries all over the world. And why does it seem like no one has had the impact? No other states have had the impact of Colorado. Now states go recreationally legal, and you know, on the East Coast, nothing happens. And even on the West Coast, you know, Washington wasn't Colorado, Oregon wasn't Colorado. Why is it just because they simply were first? No, I, I think there's a significant difference. In, in Washington State, here in Colorado, the regulators, the key is the regulators. Okay. And, and that's a very good question you asked, and I think it'll make sense in a second. The, the key is here in Colorado, I remember going down and sitting across the table with the medical, uh, marijuana enforcement division with a guy with handcuffs you know, on his belt and a gun, and saying, you know, here you got to sign away your life, saying that you agree to abide by all regulations, whether you know of them or not, and whether they're changed or not. And it's like, God, what have we signed up for, you know? But the regulators here in Colorado were very supportive of the industry. They came out of the gambling industry here in Colorado. We have casino, limited stakes casino gambling. But they were friendly to the industry. In Washington State, Eric, Something really bad, I use the terminology, but I think it's correct, happened. And that is that they gave, they, they, they put the regulators in place who regulated the alcohol industry. And the alcohol industry, without getting into political issues and corruption, let's just say that the regulators were sort of in the hip pocket of all the special interest groups and everybody else who's tied into the liquor industry. So they started out with, being negative to the industry. That's what made a big difference. Um, you know, it, it was really interesting. Now, um, Nevada um, started off really slowly, started off with medical. Everybody saw it recreational. Obviously, it's all about tourism out there. 
and there's a lot of issues. Um, you know, we could do a whole hour talking about Nevada, I think. But Nevada will be an incredible, incredible market. But then if you jump to California, California is, you know, um, I, I've said publicly, I've said on on TV shows, Eric, that in the in the U.S. marijuana space, nothing else matters but California. Why? Because it's 37 million people. But yeah. the problem in California is, the big problem is it's sort of a nanny state. You know, everybody knows, forget about cannabis. If you want to start a business, it's about the least friendly state you'd want to start in. It's highly regulated, highly taxed, not a good jurisdiction. So California is very, very, very problematic. And it's very problematic because the state came out, I think about a month ago, said they are going to spend $100 million in hiring um, agents and regulators. You know, and that's typical California as far as I'm concerned. Now, what makes it even more interesting, Eric, is that, um, you know, we had the fires in Northern California, and they devastated uh, really a lot of uh, marijuana uh, 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 grows. But, a lot, you know, without that, you know, it was projected in California that next summer that there was going to be somewhere between 8 and 12 times as much supply of marijuana as demand. 8 to 12 times, Eric, that's a huge number. And so there was a concern because keep in mind that the ability of states to be to have marijuana businesses is come under what's called the Cole Memorandum, which many of your your listeners know about, which was put in by an assistant uh, um, attorney general under Obama, and it basically said, "Hey, we'll let you do state licensed marijuana, even though it's illegal federally, if you do a few things." And one of those is to keep the product, keep marijuana away from kids. We all get that. Um, the second one was keep foreign drug cartels and um, criminal gangs out of it. We understand that, too. The third principal one was keep the plant, keep the product within your state borders. And so there's really a nervousness in California um, now about the fact that there's going to be so much supply you're going to have a new regulatory regime, and will it fall apart because so much California marijuana is going to be leaving the state? That's a real concern out there. Um, the other big issue, Eric, I think in California is that you know state and local governments see marijuana there to a large extent. It's it's being legalized, Eric, for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, this is a plant that's helped humanity for thousands of years, and to a large extent, the making it legal is not driven by health benefits or medical benefits or the fact that it never should have been illegal. You know, it was sure. a racist thing to make it illegal back in the 20s and 30s, but it's driven by um, states and local governments wanting uh, uh, wanting taxes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, you know, some of the taxes in California, they're projecting 30 percent, you know, gives, you have state, you have excise taxes, you have the local city or county. And, you know, if you put 30 percent taxes on it, um, a lot of people are basically saying we'll continue buying on the black market. Yep. So California is, you know, is very problematic. And, and it already um, seems it, like yeah, it already seems like. It doesn't all stay within the state of California's borders already. 
Like there, there's already seeming like uh, there's always going to be a black market for everything. Yeah. No well, but, I, but I think, I, you know, I, um, I don't know if this number is right, but I saw that like 70 percent of the marijuana grown in California, primarily northern California, exits the state right now. I believe so, that. huge number. I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of issues now. I, I don't know if, you know, I might be a little bit older than a lot of your your listeners, Eric, but you remember Tony Soprano on the Sopranos TV show? Sure. I mean, we're did you ever Jersey, watch that? Or? Of course, okay. we're from so, Jersey. Okay, okay, you're from Jersey. So, uh, listen, I'm <laughs> heading to Philly on Thursday. What can I tell you? Uh, and I was there last week. So, sorry. anyway, um, the um, when Tony Soprano, if you remember the TV show, he had his inner circle, and he was always looking over his shoulder. You know, he was always, who could he talk to? Who could he trust? And when you talk to people, when somebody says to you, whether it was, I remember back in 13 when we were, you know, meeting with all these people in Colorado at Starbucks meetings, or you talk to people today in California, and you said, what about November and December? A lot of people have said to me in Northern California, um, you know, up in Humboldt and Sonoma, et cetera, you know, I have been growing since I'm 13 years old. I've been made a good living for myself and my family. I've helped patients. I've enjoyed this recreational product. I don't know, and I've always had to look over my shoulder because I was, you know, uh, totally illegal. I don't know if I can come in from the cold and sign into a highly regulated California environment. I don't know if I can function if I have to hire compliance officers, in-house legal officers, people to fill out forms, you know, basically I think I'll screw it up. I will stay illegal. And that's the other big concern out there in California right now. So Jeff, I got a question for you back to the original uh, question about Colorado. Uh, You mentioned Nevada. Now, personally, I believe that that will be the closest thing that we see to Colorado within the next five years. Do you believe that there's another state that gives competition like Nevada? Well, it depends what happens in California. I mean, just based on population, it could be California. But Nevada, I think, because it's really a recreational market, it's a tourism market, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas the whole bit. I think it'll exceed Colorado in short order because of tourism. How yeah. about on the East Coast? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Okay, about. the East Coast. This is really interesting. I'm glad <laughs> we're coming back to the East Coast. Um, the East Coast is very, very, very interesting. Right now, we have the governor of, you know, the, the will of the people be damned. That's how you should look at the New Jersey, where you are. When you, if you start looking at these eastern states, uh, Maine, will the people put in recreational marijuana? Governor keeps vetoing it. If you look at Massachusetts, which will the people put in recreational adult use marijuana? Um, it's going very, very slowly. Why? Because if you get outside of Boston with all its colleges, it's a very rural state. If you look at Connecticut and Rhode Island, totally anti the plant. If you then go to New York, you know, when you get, New York is not about New York City. You know, you've been up, you know, you go up uh, Buffalo, you go up to Albany, um, you go anywhere. It's a rural state and very unfriendly to the plant when you get out of New York City or greater New York City. You look at New Jersey, same kind of thing, very conservative, not just Christie, but it's the state. You look at Pennsylvania, 
Um, not particular, you know, they can say they have medical marijuana now. It's very difficult to access it. You know, you have to have it be under the current care of a doctor in Pennsylvania, meaning you have to see him every six months. He has to tell you what product you can get. Uh, you know, it's not really, it, it's not a friendly environment. So I look at it, and even Illinois, Illinois put in medical marijuana. Um, they limited the number of medical conditions. Um, they can say they have medical marijuana, but the big thing on these eastern states, Eric, is lack of patient access. And I tell people in these eastern states, including New Jersey, I say, look, if your aunt falls, breaks her hip, and wants an alternative to an opioid, good luck in these eastern states. They're not friendly to the plant. And I'm in the industry in New Jersey, so. Yeah, New Jersey's tough. I'm familiar with. Yeah, and Florida may be a little bit of an exception. Time will tell. But, you know, we'll see what happens down there. But otherwise, the action is all about the western states. And do you think on the east it's that we're sitting back and watching what happens in the west? Or do you think that, like you said, it's the will of the people, so the state goes, okay, we'll give you something, now deal with it? Right, and I think the other thing in these eastern states, when you look at – let's look at uh, New York State, for example. And, you know, most states have a a two-house legislative system, a Senate and a House. The House, just like the House of Representatives in Washington, tends to be a lot of rural constituencies. So, you know, when you have a rural constituency and you're a legislator at the state level, it's a no-win situation to be pro-marijuana, period. And that's the same thing, actually, Eric, interestingly enough, in D.C., you know, when you look at Congress and there's all these bills in Congress now that are probably going to go nowhere because um, congressmen on, on, on the House of Representatives side who are up for reelection every couple of years, um, it's no win for them to take a position advocating the plant because most of them are from rural constituencies. Yeah. Doesn't benefit you to fight for the plant yet. No, it's it's not. There's no benefit. There's no uh, politically. It's you know, put a put a knife through your or dagger through your heart. It's probably an easier then, way to die as a politician. I know you, you, know? Jeff, I know you said that Florida is a little bit different. What do you think could be different about Florida than the other states on the east? Because really, that's the southeast, even worse than the east, as far as normal political landscape. Right, and, and Florida is a very rural state as well. You know, you just look at where Tallahassee, where the government's based, and but we have a lot of a lot of you know snowbirds coming from the Northeast, from your part of the world in New Jersey or New York, or they come down, and a lot of them have medical issues. So I think to a large extent, um, you know, I don't see it going recreational or adult use anytime soon. But I think that it'll be driven by an older population really get a, you know hearing a, a lot about anecdotal evidence regarding the benefits of this plant whether it's for as an anti-inflammatory or for pain or for sleep or anything else so I florida is an unknown it could be the one the one state that could be friendly to the plant eventually um east of the mississippi river i think we get the older people in by cbd and by also topicals and creams and stuff like that, because really, older people don't want to take as much pills and medicine as they're taking. 
So, and for a lot of reasons, you really don't need to if they just try it out and see that the topical creams actually work better than smoking weed. Yes, really. It does. For medical benefit, it really does work better to put it on topically. And I think those are the type of things that little by little, the, as, and also, too, as people get older, we're just going to lose some of those people who are anti-cannabis. And I can't imagine that the number doesn't get up into the 80, 90 percent in the near future. So. Now, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, most Americans are in favor of it being legal, you know, yeah. um, you know, a, a straight CBD, a straight CBD, you know, a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of states jumped on the straight CBD saying, oh, we can say we have cannabis, we'll, we'll allow the growing of industrial hemp and products, including CBD from hemp. But in a lot of cases, CBD by itself um, is not the solution. You know, you need a little bit of THC in there. It might be okay as an anti-inflammatory. Uh, my wife uses a CBD lotion. She has like sort of a carpal tunnel thing on her hand, and it definitely works. But she also uses one that we have obviously here in Colorado that has THC and CBD, and it works a lot better. So, right. you know, we need, if it, we need, we need THC and stuff too, you know. Better out there that can go out there and really actually figure out what actually does work instead of just trying to get a medical card to smoke pot. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. And I am the huge believer in the medical benefit. I I admit to not, you know, kind of being on board in the beginning just because I was a believer in the plant, but now the medical benefit to me is what it's all about. So. Well, that's an interesting comment because you know, I started in this industry, other than what we were doing in Canada, buying into the licensed producers under Health Canada up there, we started thinking it was all about recreational here in Colorado. And, you know, I got out of that side of it and, you know, we were there from the beginning in, in January of 14 and we got out in um, um, 2015 and, you know, I, I didn't want to look back and I'm delighted to be out of it. Um, you know, the state license business, as far as an investment opportunity or an entrepreneurial opportunity, is, you know, it's going to be a huge business, but it's questionable who can make money and when. And as I've said, on the, the adult use recreational side, fortunes will be made, but bigger fortunes will be lost it's so because it's such a problematic mm-hmm. industry. Yeah, when there's that much political issues going on, how can you bet on who's going to win a game that nobody knows the rules of? <laughs> it's just well, you know, it's, uh, it's not, Eric. It's not. It's not just that. The other thing is, you know, a lot of us, you know, we all went to college and took econ 101. What did we learn? We learned supply, demand, and pricing. Yeah. And you know, when you look at the statistics coming out of California, that there could be eight to 12 times as much supply next summer as demand, that's very problematic. Well, here in Colorado, when we started in Breckenridge in January of 14, it obviously was a resort. We were selling an ounce of marijuana for six fifty an ounce. You know why? Because we could get it. At the same time in Denver, it was being sold for four fifty or so. And that was pretty good stuff, a lot better than anything that any, you know, your, your parents smoked in the 50s or 60s. You know, genetics are a lot better. And the, so that was, you know, we were selling at 650 an ounce. Well, I, I live in Denver at least a lot of the time, and 
I get text messages from a retail store here, LiveWell, which is the largest chain in the state, an ounce of marijuana, Eric, at $79. Now, at $79 retail, nobody's making any money. The grower isn't, and the retailer isn't. The race to the bottom. Yeah. And you forget that this is ultimately a commodity. You know, when somebody says to me, I got a call from India uh, a colleague of mine used to head up Visa International. He lived in San Francisco. He's a guy from India. He called me from Delhi last week. He had there's a big industrialist from India who wanted to invest in a growth facility in California, like twenty five, thirty million dollars. You know, and what I ended up saying to him was, if you want to be a farmer, you're better off maybe growing soybeans or corn, because you can at least hedge the commodity. You can't hedge marijuana because it's illegal federally. And with yeah. supply, demand, and pricing and regulatory issues, you know, I think that uh, fortunes will be made, but I think it'll be a bloodbath. Just and like I got a question. You know, here in Colorado. Sticking with a, a little uh, political talk, explain to people how important Rora Bacher Blumhauer is and what happens after December 30th if that doesn't get extended. Well, that basically, uh, you know, the bottom line of it is it doesn't, it it precludes the ability of the federal government to use federal resources, personnel and money to go after state licensed businesses, period. So it's it's sort of a a safe harbor for people in the state licensed business. So that's, who knows what Congress is going to do. But, you know, I I think it'll be renewed in, in some form. But we'll see. I, you know, I've I've written a bunch of articles on Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General. Um, he hates this plant. He firmly believes that if a kid smokes a joint on a Tuesday, that that kid's going to be hooked on heroin on a Thursday. And he's doing, you know, he. I don't think he could actively, you know, a Trump administration has enough issues. You know, they're very dysfunctional, obviously, and they don't need another battle, and they don't need hundreds of thousands of people protesting in San Francisco or L.A. or Denver or Berkeley or Oakland. But he's doing a lot of stuff that's very negative for this industry, sort of behind the scenes. I'm not normally a conspiracy person, but he's doing a lot of bad stuff on this industry. So, you know, when I look at all these bills in Congress and all these, you know, even some Republicans and Democrats have gotten together, they don't go anywhere because – Justice Justice Department is lobbying at the committee level and killing stuff at the committee level. I mean, that's one of the things they're doing. And now what about the reinstatement of asset forfeiture? Is that something that only happens if Rohrabacher doesn't get extended, or is that already in No, 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 no. Asset forfeiture, which was terminated, it's horrible. You know, it was terminated by the Obama administration, and – it's it's very problematic. It reminds me of the Gestapo in the 1930s taking people's businesses, their houses, their possessions. Because once you take asset forfeitures, if, if something is used in a crime, the government can seize it, and it's virtually impossible to get it back. Yeah. And what's happened is, is that there was a deal in place between the feds in states and local jurisdictions where they split the proceeds. And what it did, it became a slush fund. 
for local governments so they could go out and buy tanks and everything else they think they need and, you know, go on vacations, holidays, conferences, conventions, off balance sheet, off budget. So, you know, that was terminated by Obama, that, you know, and, that was, and Holder, the attorney general. That was a big deal. Well, my feeling that when Sessions put it back in place, that it wasn't so much about the feds using asset forfeiture to go against marijuana businesses. But what he was saying instead, I firmly believe, was he was saying the local sheriffs, local district attorneys, um, local police chiefs who may not be friendly to the plant, even in a state like Colorado or Nevada, um, go after businesses you believe are involved in um, drug trafficking, narcotic trafficking, namely marijuana businesses, seize their assets, and now you can do it again. And so it sort of provided a green light, not for the feds to do it, because they really couldn't use government assets or um, um, personnel or money or funds, but it gave a green light to your local uh, law enforcement people to start seizing things. And that's very problematic. And that's one of the things I believe that little things that uh, Sessions has done that becomes very problematic. Have you heard of that happening, or it's just possible that it could happen now? Um, I have not. I've not had time to follow it. I've yeah. not heard any cases of it happening, but I, um, I believe it probably has, but I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it has so far. Hmm. But this was only about, what, about eight weeks ago when they did that, I think? Right. So Maybe a little bit Yeah. Although, believe me, when it happens, you're going to see it in the news. Yeah, last summer, a friend of mine, you know, last summer, a friend of mine up in uh, Santa Rosa, California, um, the Fed showed up at, you know, 5 a.m. And they took a million dollars of equipment and cash and plants. And he had had the state legislature see his operation the week before. And, you know, this was the locals taking it. He still hasn't got it back. So, you know, it's it's uh it's a a big concern for anybody looking to invest in a grow facility or a retail operation you know it's just you can't predict where this is going to be can't predict right. the action of government and we are talking to Jeff Friedland CEO of Intiva Inc and Intiva Biofarm check him out right now symbol K D R H for uh Intiva Biofarm, keep an eye out for ticker symbol changing soon. So bottom line is, Jeff, I love your opinion just on the industry in general, but really we are pot stock radio. So we've got pot stock and pot investment questions and really just start with for the newer investor in the cannabis space, those people that just hear you can invest in publicly traded companies that are related to cannabis. What what do you want to tell those people are the most important factors they should look at when determining whether or not they should take a company seriously? Well, I think, you know, look, there, there's hundreds of small publicly traded U.S. companies that claim to have some sort of involvement in the cannabis industry. You know, a lot of them are just promotional deals. So the first thing I would tell them, Eric, is drill down on the business model and the business plan and see if it makes sense. 
you know, you don't have to be know a lot about the marijuana right. industry. Yeah. And the second thing is, you know, decide if you there, there's a lot of investors who are not comfortable in in this in any part of the industry in the United States that, as the expression goes, touches the plant because that's illegal federally. And, you know, if, if I uh, – and one of the reasons I wanted to get out of the Breckenridge and Crested View was, I mean, somebody could have uh, implicated me for narcotic trafficking and come and taken the house I've lived in for 17 years, you know. So it's very dangerous. You know, the first thing is decide if you want to be involved in an industry that touches the plant. If not, there's lots of other businesses around it. You know, there's people doing software, there's people doing branding, marketing, security systems, uh, packaging, um, all kinds of services. So that's one determination. Another thing is, you know, we're not just talking about the United States anymore because, you know, Canada, um, there's I think somewhere around 35 publicly traded companies in Canada, most of which trade in the United States, that are involved in growing, processing, and sales totally legal federally in Canada that you can invest in without worrying about looking over your shoulder. So, um, you know, the first thing is, where do you want to play? How do you want to get involved? That's the, the the big first decision. Yeah, and I'm more of a believer in Canada because, like you said, at least there it's legal. You can see numbers and see people actually growing and selling the plant. The whole country, the whole continent. The whole country is, the whole country is legal. But, but, but be careful because the whole country being legal. Right. But the whole country being legal, there's 32 million people in Canada, and I think you just said, Jeff, there's 37 million people in California. So is that right? There's more people in California yeah. than the whole yeah. country. Yeah. Well, uh, Eric, let me put it in perspective. I, when, when I discuss the the Canadian marketplace, you know, my line is, you know, again, all that really matters in the U.S. is California with its 37 million, and I think there's more deer than people in Canada. So you've got a, you know, you've got a, a very competitive situation up there right now. It's medical. There's supposed to be uh, adult use recreational kicking in Canada Day next year, which is July one of 2018. Um, there's a lot from here to there to get to it. There's a lot of issues up there. Um, for example, in Ontario, they only want retail cannabis sold through um, pro- provincially owned stores. The government's going to be the seller. That's not really good because it just puts you have one. If you have to sell it to the government, government could set the prices. You know, how good is the industry going to be? So each province gets to decide how the retail distribution side gets to go. But it is legal in Canada right now um, under Health Canada, their national health care system. And there's some great companies up there. Well, speaking of great companies, one that we got to talk about, and I'm sure it's what you've been talking about nonstop, is Constellation Brands and their investment in canopy growth. Right, right. This is, I don't care if you're an illegal grower in California or if you're a, a grower, a licensed grower in Colorado or Washington State or even in New Jersey, having been to a grow facility in Secaucus, um, this deal that happened, um, just happened, 
with Constellation Brands, which is the largest distributor of alcoholic beverages in North America, meaning uh, Corona beer um, and others, but in the United States and Canada, they put in $200 million Canadian, roughly $190 million U.S. dollars into Canopy Growth. Um, Canopy Growth is an incredible company, and I've called them. Um, it trades the United States. It trades. Um, it trades in Canada as well. Um, Canopy Growth um, today, just to give you an idea, um, it closed in U.S. dollars, U.S. market trades U.S. and Canada at fifteen dollars and twenty-five cents. Eric, um, up two dollars, up almost fifteen percent for the day. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at a fifty-two week range on the stock. Again, it's 15.25 today. Um, the 52-week range was a low of $4.90, high of $15.27. Um, it's at the top, but they have now $200 million to invest in this industry. Yeah, and the average volume, usually on canopy growth on the U.S. trading, it has been 426,000 shares. Today, the volume was 2.3 million shares. And this is a stock that I'm incredibly, I mean, nothing else matters in Canada, Eric, than canopy growth. It's the 800-pound gorilla of the Canadian cannabis industry, period. Since they were tweed, so I'm with you. And now, understanding that it's a liquor manufacturer, an alcohol manufacturer, investing in a cannabis company. I know you just said that the provinces are going to be the ones distributing the cannabis. I was wondering if that was a a hedge or a bet on the liquor distributors distributing the cannabis too. I'm glad you asked that question because this is something that's fascinating to me that I've been interested in since February. And I don't know, probably a lot of your listeners, uh, Eric, know um, a New York investment bank called Cowan and Company, C-O-W-E-N. And I spoke at one of their conferences in New York uh, beginning of the year. Um, and they follow, um, they follow the group that, that follows cannabis, follows what they call Sin Industries. And uh, Vivian Azer heads up the team. She's phenomenal. So they cover cigarettes, tobacco, they cover alcohol, and they cover now cannabis. And so I said to her back in February, I said, was there any data to correlate alcohol sales versus cannabis sales in in advanced, what I call advanced marijuana states, some of the western states like Colorado, Washington, Oregon, to some extent Nevada, to some extent California. And lo and behold, data has come out showing that, you know, here in Colorado and some of the other states that beer sales have gone down substantially once adult use of recreational marijuana was available. If you go to a liquor store in the United States on a Thursday or Friday night, what do you see? You see people coming out with cases of beer to party for the weekend, right? Well. Yeah. You know, I, I, I go if you go to a marijuana store here in Colorado on a Thursday or Friday night, what do you see? People going in and buying their weed for the weekend. Stacey so, had a good point, though. It could just be that the stoners are too lazy to go to the liquor store. It could be that. <laughs> it could be that simple. 
It could be. It could be. <laughs> but I think what Constellation Brands, a part of their strategy with Canopy Growth was to develop part, and that's not even out of this $200 million, was to when and if and where it was possible to do a drink that was cannabis-based. Um, reading between the lines, that could be a CBD drink, non-psychoactive, or it could be a THC drink or THC CBD drink. That that that's where they wanted to be. So you know, I I think that when you look at Constellation Brands um, and Corona Beer, basically saying we need to hedge our bets. I think they're nervous as to what happens to the beer industry, and they think that they better get a piece of the action in the, the marijuana space. Would you be surprised if other alcohol manufacturers quickly followed suit? Well, no, I, I um, you know, um, uh, Scott's Miracle Grow, you know, was the first major, major U.S. company that was yeah. willing to, to invest in the cannabis space, you know, really for fertilizer and pesticide. This with uh, Constellations the second, I think you may see a lot of it, but it's not going to be the United States because they can't really invest in a company that touches the plant legally in the U.S., so I think Canada is the beneficiary, but Canopy Growth was the largest licensed producer in Canada before this deal with Constellation Brands. And, you know, to be a Me Too or um, I was on the phone with a colleague who has a publicly traded uh, um, licensed producer in Canada, you know, they're dwarfed in size before with Canopy Growth. Canopy Growth's the largest, and they say they have the largest indoor growing facility in the world, and you know, in Canada, everybody's adding millions of square feet to growing, and there will be the same issues we had here in Colorado and what will happen probably next summer in California, which is supply, demand, and pricing having an impact on the industry. So I think, yeah, I think it's a wake-up call to other alcohol participants, but it's also something more significant, Eric. And what's more significant about it is that um, – it's a green light for other Fortune 500 companies to get involved in the space. It's a, it's a realization that this industry is here. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so I think we will see some other major transactions. But I don't think the U.S. and U.S. growers or uh, processors, extractors, or retail store owners or dispensaries are going to be the beneficiaries because it's federally illegal. And now this transaction isn't supposed to close until the third quarter of 2018. What, if any, hang-ups do you see being possible? No, it closed. And, uh, it, closed. Oh. it closed. It closed. It closed, uh, I think, uh, mid-last week. Yeah, it's done Done deal. Oh, gotcha. $200 million. $200 million. Done Big deal. number. I thought it still had possibilities of falling apart. I didn't realize it was a totally no, 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 no. Now, interesting. There's an interesting. The the transaction was it included common stock and Constellation Brands acquired just under ten percent because that's a legal threshold. They wanted to stay under under control and stuff. But they also got one to one warrant coverage, meaning that for every share they bought, they get a, a thirty month warrant, which means it's an, like an option to acquire another share. Yeah. Um, and they can do that in two tranches. Now, I, 
they don't have the same kind of disclosure in Canada as we have in the U.S. So I really couldn't figure out what uh, if there were anti-dilution provisions for Constellation brands. That means that uh, is Constellation Brands going to be able to maintain its 9.9% interest, or ah. are other people going to invest in canopy growth and they see their interest going down to 876? I don't know whether that's there or not. But then the question becomes, what happens with these warrants? Because if if the if they maintain the 9.9% ownership, uh, Constellation Brands and Canopy and they exercise the warrants, they're going to be above 9.9, which means they're really going to control the company. At that point, it really becomes a subsidiary of Constellation Brands. And, um, or, you know, what could happen is, is that they basically take over the whole rest of Canopy Growth, and it becomes 100% owned by Constellation Brands. I would not be surprised. But over the next 30 months, if, if it comes out that uh, – you know, since the show is tied to stocks, the real unknown in the market for me is if Constellation Brands does not exercise those warrants, is the street, is the market going to say, hey, they don't have confidence in Canopy, they don't have confidence in the industry, and everybody freaks out. So well, that's right the now, real red flag we got to worry about. Right now they wouldn't because they don't want – like they went in as 9.9% owners for a reason. So like you're saying, if they right. bought – more now they would be over 9.9% owners but i hear what you're saying that's not what the street's going to say when they don't purchase the warrants if they don't exercise their warrants yeah the warrants would be looked at as they don't believe in the company now hmm. keep in mind also that philip morris international okay. um which is different than philip morris us there's two companies they made an investment uh in first quarter of 2015, I think it was 15, in a little Israeli company called Seek. Nobody knows how to pronounce it. It's S-Y-Q-E, I think, or Q-U-E, and who had a delivery system for um, for cannabis through an inhaler, like a, but it uses a powder, and they had a you know a patented process to take the flour and convert it into a powder to use these inhalers. Now, when Philip Morris invested in Seek, they said, oh, it's about an alternative method of delivering nicotine. At the time, I was in Israel when this went down, and I tried to, a friend of mine was friends of the CEO of Seek. I tried to get an appointment because I wanted to find out what the real deal was. Yeah, why and they, they won't talk about it. I think it's about, I think it's positioning of the cigarette industry, and this goes back, you know, two years um, in cannabis, I don't think it's about an alternative delivery mechanism for um, for um, um, nicotine. So it's logical. Like you said, if if the alcohol companies are panicking, realizing cannabis is coming, the tobacco industry has to be shitting its pants. I just said to Kenny, I can't believe that the uh, tobacco industry. Like big tobacco is not already itching. Like, well, they are itching. They just I, I can't because it's federally illegal. You know, no, they, they definitely can't. Yeah, and there were rumors going around too that some of the cigarette companies, you know, it's legal to grow in Uruguay, and there were, you know, that, that bought some farms down there. I never was able to substantiate them um, down in Uruguay to do some R and D. So, you know, ultimately, is it logical to assume that the cigarette companies? 
and the um, liquor companies end up owning a big part of the adult use or recreational market product side? Absolutely. Because why? Because they know how to market these kinds of products. They're good at branding, and they're good at getting the sales, and they have distribution. So it's logical to think that eventually um, they'll own the space. You know, a friend of mine um, is the CFO of a, a Colorado operation with a bunch of stores. They did $50 million of business last year, and um, they lost about $10 million. Because, you know, with all the IRS problems and supply, demand, and pricing, I'm not sure anybody in Colorado is making much money, if any money. You know, and somebody said to me that yeah. basically every retail store in Colorado is probably for sale. I don't know if that's truly true. But the um, what I said to him was, I said, look, you know, your, your principals, your owners of the firm, you know, do they have deep pockets? And he said, yeah. I said, are they deep enough to absorb 10 million losses a year? He said, they're not that deep. And right. I said, well, what's their end game? And he said, their end game is to sell out to big tobacco or big alcohol. I said to him, I said, look, I can't tell you. They're not going to do that till it's federally legal. I can't tell you if game. that's going to be this year, next year, five years, ten years, or never. You know? So it's a, you can't do a business model or a business plan based on anticipated regulatory or legislative changes. You know, you've so got to no do a business plan based on what works today. Otherwise, it's a fool's game. So I know you understand the global market of cannabis and just global markets in general. So besides Canada, which we've talked a lot about, what other emerging markets are you excited about? You know, like South America, you've talked a little bit about uh, Israel. And I know you are heavily involved in China. Is there an emerging cannabis market in China? Or anywhere. Well, there is only on the CBD side in China. You know, when the United States, um, when the United States uh, made marijuana illegal in 1937, they also made industrial hemp illegal in the United States. Basically, the rest of the world continued to grow hemp. Hemp is a source of CBD, and um, as well as marijuana. CBD being non-psychoactive has a lot of health and medical benefits. So. The rest of the world continue to grow it, including China. You know, if you go back um, two or three thousand years, um, hemp, hemp and mar- the problem from the federal standpoint is that hemp and mar- what we call marijuana in the U.S. and what people are calling hemp are genetically the same plant. They're genetically the same plant. And what happened is we've all talked about, uh, uh, you know, uh, bioengineering and all this other stuff with plants, but basically humans thousands of years ago really didn't know they were genetically modifying the cannabis plant, but they discovered a couple things. One is they started breeding varieties of cannabis for its fiber. And that became what we call industrial hemp today, a plant that could be 12, 15, 20 feet tall. They never grew it for flower or bud where the cannabinoids were because they didn't know about it. But they could take the stock, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, what do you think they wore? They wore yeah. hemp clothing because they could take the fiber, dry it in the sun, and weave it. Well, at the same time, um, other people, you know, probably in India, discovered that there was a little bit of a buzz from this plant, and there was a psychoactive. So other people started breeding 
what became what we call marijuana. And not really for religious purposes, but let's just say spiritual relaxation purposes. So when you go back, that's why things are screwed up today. Because when um, genetically, it's the same plant. So when you look at China, China always had hemp because it was important for textile fiber. You know, keep in mind that drafts of the Declaration of Independence in the United States were written on um, hemp paper, that the word canvas, C-A-N-V-A-S, came from cannabis. Why Rembrandt, uh, Moreau, all those, you know, they all, what they painted on? They painted on canvas from cannabis, from hemp coming out of Europe. Um, Sails for uh, rope, all from hemp. And so the U.S., when it made, um, made marijuana illegal, threw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, made hemp illegal as well. 1937, they brought it back for World War II. And when World War II was over, there was a little bit grown in, in Wisconsin for a while, and then they made it illegal again. So, you know, but other countries continue to grow it. In Canada, just north of the western U.S. and Alberta and Manitoba, there's millions of acres of uh, hemp that were grown for fiber. Australia, they continue to grow hemp for fiber. Uh, India, China, um, through uh, Croatia, um, Spain, Portugal. Um, so it's been there as an agricultural uh, crop primarily for fiber. I'm saying, are there any emerging marijuana markets that are exciting to you? You know, like Something that would be compared to, comparable to yeah, yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Um, I'll tell you, Australia uh, looks really good. Um, I believe, you know, the Canadian uh, licensed producers, public marijuana companies, are selling into Germany. They're selling into a lot of other countries. I think it's a short-term strategy because I think these countries develop their own homegrown industry. But I'm excited about Latin America. You're absolutely right. Uh, Colombia um, is going to be huge. And I think it's going to be huge. Uh, I know some people that have gotten licenses there because they have the ability there to export throughout Latin America or anywhere else that the product of marijuana can be legally imported. So I'm excited about that. Uruguay, there's not a lot of people there, but the Brazil market is huge. Um, You know, maybe as a short-term effect, uh, Colombia can supply Brazil. Brazil's most of the economy of uh, um, Latin America anyway. Um, There's some interesting things happening in Mexico. Um, Israel, which has had medical for a long time, is going to go with recreational. They bit the bullet because you walk along the beach in Tel Aviv, everybody's smoking grass anyway, and they have a medical regime, and they have all the genetics and all the science, so why not make it legal? So, um, But I think the, the countries that are interesting, I think Germany will be very interesting. Um, obviously, the U.K. has GW Pharmaceuticals as a U.K. company. It's a $3 billion market cap public company, GWPH. Um, I've, I, there was an announcement last week on – um, they're getting, uh, they're applying to the FDA for final uh, approval of a FDA new drug application for Epidiolex, which is their CBD formulation for kids with uh, um, forms of epilepsy. It's a big derived deal. from the plant. 
derived, plant derived, yeah. And actually, that's interesting, Eric, because it's the first time that the U.S. government is being forced to acknowledge that there's a medical benefit from this plant. Yeah, so although they GW and getting Epidiolex approved is huge. It's huge yep. for everybody in the industry because at least the U.S. government's going to have to look themselves in the mirror and says, yeah, we've been All saying right. since 37 there's no medical benefit, and now we've got a, a drug that's going to be available not through state-licensed marijuana businesses but through conventional pharmaceutical distribution channels like Walgreens or Rite Aid or CVS um, that's plant-derived. It's a big deal. Man, Jeff Friedland, that hour flew by. And again, we were talking to Jeffrey Friedland, CEO of Intiva Inc. and Intiva Biofarm. Also, check out his book, very cool book, Marijuana, the World's Most Misunderstood Plant. You can buy that on uh, Amazon or just go to his website, jeffreyfriedland.com. That's F-R-I-E-D-L-A-N-D. Dot com And also, if you happen to be in the San Francisco area, he is speaking at the Emerging Manager Forum at the Fairmount in San Francisco, and that's this Thursday. Is that correct? Uh, the that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. All right. And you're going to tell people, like, go there, and you'll be able to listen to and find out about the 14 subsectors of the cannabis industry and what you can invest in. It's more than just the plant. And uh, Jeff will break it down for you there like no other. So, Jeff, really enjoyed having you on. Definitely want to have you back on Potstock Radio, especially as we get closer to Canada Day, knowing you are very involved in some companies and what's going on up north of us. So, Could I just say one last thing, uh, Eric? You've got as much time as you want. I made this go a little okay, bit Okay, I just want to the, – look, the, the, this, this show, this program, we haven't talked about individual stocks other than um, – canopy growth and again i'm not making investment recommendations but all that matters in canada at the end of the day 200 million in the bank this deal with constellation brands is huge you know uh people that listen in take a look at uh canopy growth um turning benefits i'm going to give you a couple more uh gw pharmaceuticals we talked about trades on nasdaq here three billion market cap um, I think it's about $113 was up a little bit today. GWPH will be the first time that a drug is approved that's plant-derived. It will be available in pharmacies. Um, GWPH, GW Pharma, worth looking at. Two others, which we can talk about another time. <clears throat> One is Cara Therapeutics, trades here U.S., C-A-R-A, on the yep. pharma side. Um, another one is really interesting is Kronos Group. It's a Canadian-based uh, Kronos Group. I really like. Um, I like them a lot. It trades um, in the U.S. PRMCF. Um, I like them. They're based out of British Columbia. Most of the yep. stocks we talk about in Canada are all about you know Montreal. I mean Quebec or in uh, Ontario. So I do find uh, Kronos Group. I like we their had, business uh, model a lot. You know. We had Mike Gorenstein on as a guest two months ago. It, it was, was great. An awesome guest. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a great company. I like their focus. I like their direction. He owns part of, I think, five different licensed producers. I like the model on that one. So, um, yeah, those are some I like. But I think GW, it's in the news right now, um, and Canopy Growth's in the news right now, too. You know, I would say to all your viewers, uh, I mean, listeners, 
pull up a chart on those, take a look at it, watch them, and watch them. And, you know, it's worth doing your due diligence and getting involved. And by the way, check out, I'm sure you've done videos for uh, the, uh, shoot, what is it called? The, uh, oh, Marijuana Stock of the Week. I'm sure you've covered both GW Pharma and Canopy Growth with your marijuana stock. Yeah, actually, stock I week. haven't done Canopy Growth I have. Um, we do two stocks every, every weekend. We do one that's Canadian because, again, it's legally federal, uh, federally legal in Canada, and we do one U.S. one. So there's a lot of shows. They're on YouTube. If you type in my name or go to JeffreyFriedland.com, you'll see all the shows, and you'll see the symbols and names. So every every weekend we talk about one Canadian, one U.S. stock. And quite honestly, um, you know, I'm not really positive about very many of them. But the ones I just, you know, indicated um, – when I find something I like, I really get excited about it. And these four right now, I'm pretty excited about GW, Canopy Growth, uh, Kronos, and uh, Terra Therapeutics. So, All right, good And there's stuff. others, too. We will definitely have more to cover because I know we could probably do another hour right now if we wanted to, Jeff Friedland. So good stuff. Really enjoyed having you on. And again, check him out, jeffreyfriedland.com, and buy his book on Amazon, Marijuana, the World's Most Misunderstood Plant. And also looking forward to definitely got to have you back on as things evolve with uh, Intiva Biofarm. And, you know, you get set up there. Let's have you back on to talk about that as well. I'd be delighted. All right. Thank you again. And we were talking to Jeffrey Friedland, CEO of Intiva. Got to fix that. Intiva Inc. and Intiva Biofarm. Right now you can follow them, symbol K-D-R-H, but that's because they are a reverse merger into a shell of kinder holdings so expect that ticker symbol to change in the near future really enjoyed having jeff on and thank you to kd nick and stace for being a part of potstock radio with me reminding everyone go to magicalbutter.com and buy your magical butter machine somebody deserves one for christmas and put potstock one word in for the promo code and get 30 bucks off your magical butter two machine Give us a follow on Facebook, too. Yep, Facebook, Twitter, Potstock Radio NJ, and Twitter at Potstock Radio. We will be back first Monday of December. That is December 4th. And stay tuned for a lineup update on Twitter in the upcoming weeks. Have a great week and a great month, and see you again soon. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. And that's how she wrote.